We're talking about the kingdom of God in this series we've called Colonizing Earth with the Life of Heaven. And it's fitting that we would look this week at Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus gives seven different parables. We're not going to go over all of them. But seven different parables, which are extended metaphors that are all aimed at helping you understand different aspects of this unfamiliar thing called God breaking into the world and setting up his kingdom so that everything runs here the way that it does harmoniously and joyfully in the heavens. As a reminder, the heavens are not an ethereal place, according to the Bible, nor are they a place where there are merely ghosts and spirit things. The picture we get is that the most real world is the heavenly world. That's where the throne room of God is. And what happens there is that everybody finds it the most fun, joyful, delightful thing on, I was about to say on the earth, but on the heaven, to do what God wants. They think that is fantastic. They don't feel deprived by it. They feel enlivened by it. And Jesus has taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a constitution of folks in the heavenlies, of beings in the heavenlies, that he wants to come and take up residence in us on the earth. He wants to make us single-hearted creatures who make much of Jesus. And that's a big part of this sermon today, is that if Jesus doesn't matter most to you, then he probably won't matter very much. And if he doesn't matter most then you're not going to be able to have any shock absorption for the troubles that assail you. And it doesn't matter most, you're not going to have any sense of peace or a lasting purpose. If it doesn't matter most, then you're not going to possess, in the fullest and most intended sense, your possessions. You're, You're going to squander this life that's been given to you. Jesus has this intention, and so he tells these stories of what The kingdom of heaven is like this intention of helping people discover something that is so real and so good, but so deeply unfamiliar. And so that's why he uses parables. A parable, as I said, is an extended metaphor, and a metaphor is something where the writer or the speaker, and you do this all the time, whether you think of yourself as a writer or not, takes something that we don't know about, and tries to help it be known by telling us something we do know about. So when my buddy takes his 1966 Jeepster Commando back in the early 90s to Wagner's garage, and he can hear that thing's firing on all five cylinders instead of six. And they're looking under the hood, and he says, Careful that manifold, it's hotter than a fiery cracker. Wagner was using metaphor. He was saying, you know how hot a fiery cracker is, don't you? That's a firecracker if you're not familiar. You don't want to touch those things, burn your hands. He said, you know how hot that is? Well, that's how hot this, in fact, this manifold is hotter even than that. 
And Jesus is trying to say, here are some pictures of what happens to a life and what can keep happening to a life as you grow in your realization, as you stumble onto more and more the treasure that the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God is. And he says here that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And he says kingdom of heaven, you've heard this before in Matthew, kingdom of heaven is often used instead of kingdom of God. They're synonymous and ancient Judaism. There was a great circumspection, nervousness, carefulness about misusing the name of God. So they just had different ways of referring to God without using his name. Hashem, the name, was one way. And sometimes the heavens are used as a euphemism to talk about God. Jaber Crow does the same. Where does your water come from, Mr. Crow? Why, from the heavens, of course, he says. God gives me my water at my barber shop. And Jesus describes something we don't know about in the kingdom of heaven by telling us something that we know very much about. Stumbling onto fantastic things. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man had stumbled upon it, he discovered it, he hid it again. And then, in his joy, he went and divested everything he had to get this thing that was way more valuable. When Jesus matters most, other things will start to matter much less in comparison. And if other things matter way too much, then Jesus isn't going to matter very much. And Jesus tells you this parable because he wants to know He wants you to know that there is a treasure, there is something precious, there is something longed for in your lifelong pursuit of fullness, of vitality that is packed in the availability of the kingdom of the heavens, the rule of God, which is focused and centered in the person of Jesus. Where Jesus is, there's the kingdom of God. Where people have bowed the knee to Jesus and have come to him, there is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of the heavens has been initiated. Do you think of areas of your life where a kind of of joy comes over you and you think, this is what I was made for. You might have moments like this where you've uncovered something, you've, you've heard some kind of music, you started playing music, that's why all college students want to be musicians, because they've, they've found something. They like to write poetry, bad poetry, but they like to write poetry. Wistful, angsty things. But they love the words and it does something for them. There's a joy in it and they think, this is what I'm make my life doing. This is because that's all they've ever done. They haven't done much yet. But they experienced something that was very joyful, full. And Jesus is holding out a precious, valued treasure called doing a sovereignty swap with him that is meant to, to bring a kind of single-minded joy to you that will 
enlarge your life substantially. It makes me think of what happens to us and what can continue to happen to us and what lifelongly happens to us is something like what happened to a dog that I had a complicated relationship with named Argos. Did somebody just say ah there? You should say ah, kind of, about Argos. Argos, I think, was a Chesapeake Bay retriever. He belonged to the Hennigers, founding members of Rock Creek and my neighbors. Now, Argos had less legs than you would think a dog would have. He only had three-fourths of the customary number. That's because the people who lived in my house before me, our house, I'm sorry, our house before us, had shot him. He, come on, move on out here with us. And, but Argos was tough and he prevailed, but lost a limb in the process. So he became a sturdy and ornery, I should say. He hated me. And it hurt my feelings and scared me not a little. He became a three-legged, ornery dog with the most laser focus of any creature I've ever met. Because you know what he wanted to do? Eat? No. I mean, maybe. But no, he wanted to fetch. He wanted to retrieve things. It was in his name. He's a Chesapeake Bay retriever, I think. You've had labs. You've had dogs like this who are just annoying in their capacity to retrieve. And so he would stand, if you're talking Beside the creek, Rock Creek, and you're talking to your friend, you're talking to someone, and Argos would stand before you, not for very much longer than you wished. And if you did not acknowledge his presence, he would force you to acknowledge his presence as he stood there with a piece of 60-pound driftwood in his mouth. He would drop it and kind of look around incredulously that no one was noticing him. And then he would go, Roof! And if you didn't immediately stop what you were doing and, and remedy this situation by throwing your shoulder out to throw this driftwood into the middle of the creek so the three-legged animal could go after it, then he would do this. Roof! He wasn't scared to annoy you or to interrupt you. He didn't know the trick about putting his paw on your palm to let you know that he wanted to break into the conversation as some of you were teaching your kids. He just, woof. But there was something admirable about this because this dog would carry and retrieve things that you would throw. you throw anything you wanted to the creek. And with three legs, he would dive into the creek and he would get it and he would come back to you and he would drop it. And if you weren't paying attention, woof. And he was determined, here's what we're going to do. Until everybody dies, we're going to retrieve things. I can keep doing this until parts of your body start falling off. He had this singular focus. He was driven by this singular passion. I go and get things. And then I bring them back. And then I go and get things again and bring them back. He was a retriever, and he had his purpose. And when Jesus says, do you want the joy 
of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. You've got to know your purpose and you can stumble upon it like Argos was born into it. You were made to have this singular devotion to your benevolent King Jesus. That's what you were made to run on. That's what the the angels in heaven get so excited about doing like Argos with their roof. The angels say, what can we do, Lord? You want me to do what? Yes! I love it! And they run or fly. And Jesus is making a group of people like that who are mastered not by their own flimsy and flighty emotions, not by their own flimsy and flighty desires that take them ever which way, not by their own bad habits, which means they have as many masters as they have habits tossed about this way and that. His rule means your joy. As you succumb to it, you, you offer up this sense that I am the sovereign of my life. As Tim Keller said, the self-sovereign. I, I, I swap sovereignties. And I say, no, 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 now, Jesus, you, you will be sovereign of my life. You will be king of my life. You will be ruler of my life. And Jesus says, and you will know joy. You'll know a sturdy, indestructible capacity that is resourced to get you through the hardest things in your life, and you'll have a reason for doing it. You'll be doing it for your king. You'll learn the power of personal possessive pronouns. It always comes back to grammar, people. You think it doesn't? You say, Jesus is my king. Jesus is my hope. King Jesus is the one I want. He's the one I need. He's mine. He's my Savior, my Lord, my Redeemer, my all. You count on the King and you know joy. And it becomes more valuable than anything else so that you can start to rule out other possibilities. Whatever it might cost you, you don't care because it's a much better deal to get His kingship in your life, in the center of it, to operate around Him instead of having this world that doesn't care about you operate around you. And the joy, there's this, this relief that comes. I, I saw a story this week in the passing of Barbara Bush. A member of our congregation, Janet Milanese, back in the late 80s, she and her husband at the time were missionaries teaching in Africa. And they were going to get their, two of their daughters at boarding school. And they got hit by a dump truck. Her husband was killed. She broke her back, and she needed medical care badly. They were trying to get her back to the States to get this care. Her mother, who lives here in Chattanooga and wrote this story in the Chattanooga this week, needed some help from the FAA so that her husband and son could meet their daughter and sister at the airport in D.C. on the Olin Mills plane. And so, of course, she did what anybody would do. She called the White House. <laughs> Can you imagine this? You're in this distressful situation, and mom says, well, I guess I'll call the White House. And everybody says, great idea. 
Just call the White House, see if you can talk to the president. I was mystified. What? She, she did what? She called the White House? Can you even do that? Well, she did it. She said the first time I called the White House, the lady was not very helpful. But then so she just called back. Because she had this singular desire, this singular focus, something very precious to her, her daughter, her granddaughters. They needed help getting to them. And she didn't care about what people thought about her. She sacrificed that. She gave it up. She didn't care about how she might be perceived. She's a mom, and she was trying to help her daughter, and she had to get to her, and she had to get her access. And so she called the White House, the most powerful thing in America she could think of. The patient person was rude, so you know what she did? She called back. I don't think I would have called the White House even the one time. I wouldn't even have known how to do it. But then somehow, in some configuration of events, Barbara Bush answers the phone. Barbara Bush, the president's wife. It's November. He's going to be inaugurated in January. And the president's wife answers the phone at the White House. And so she tells Barbara Bush, the first lady of the United States, the plight of her daughter. And Barbara says, well, let me see what I can do. And 10 minutes later, the head of the FAA is calling saying, you've got clearance. She called Barbara. Barbara Bush answered the phone at the White House. What is happening? That is fantastic. And it's only an approximation of what Jesus says is available to those who are not playing at a fool's errand, who those who have reckoned with the cost of non-discipleship and have said, you know what I'll do? I'd like to submit myself to the one for whom I was made and let him become the government of my life instead of myself. And, and now you can call not just the White House and not just hope that Barbara Bush will answer, as remarkable as that is, but you can have the one answer who calls things that are not as though they were, who is fully able to do what he promised, who raises the dead. A sovereignty swap brings great joy that makes anything you have to give up to get at Jesus very, very worth it. If Jesus doesn't matter most to you, then he's probably not going to matter very much. And this man finds this treasure, and he thinks this is the best thing, the kingdom of heaven, this is the best thing that I can think of. And so I don't care what it costs me to keep getting more of it, to grab hold of it. It enlarges my life. It brings a fullness. It sustains me with a kind of joy. How do you know if you've made this kind of sovereignty swap? Well, one thing that happens is you start to realize. You start to realize that you, you want to make it. You start to realize that there's a comfort in it. You start to realize that there's stuff about your life that you can't sustain on your own. We're in the prom season. Actually, it's happily over. I heard Sammy Rhodes recently say, seeing all these prom pictures makes me so happy to be a 37-year-old man who is comfortable going to the movies by himself. <laughs> Do 
But in a very real way, it's an interesting thing about a prom. You spend these inordinate amounts of money, and people get all dolled up, and it's great fun. And it reminds me, though, that in very substantial ways, our lives are a rented tux. Now, ladies, ladies buy their dresses, I think, but men, they, they, most cases, except for extra debonair ones, they rent a tuxedo because they don't have an occasion to own one necessarily, unless they're going to be president. And you rent this tux, and you look really dashing for a night, but then you have to turn it back in with the patent leather shoes and all. And all the dashingness, is, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just rented flash that you don't get to keep. And there's a very real sense in which Jesus is constantly urging people to realize that our lives are a really fragile thing. There are rented tucks that you're going to have to turn back in. You might, you might for a moment dazzle people with accomplishment. You might for a moment concoct a life that looks really beautiful on the outside. You still got yourself to deal with, which is always a problem. But you're going to have to turn it back in. And Jesus said, why would you give your life? To trying to impress everybody or having a beach house and make your life about retiring... When you're just going to have to trade it back in. When you could attach yourself to the king of the world who defeats death. Who accepts you. Who meets the deepest craving of your empty heart. What a man desires is unfailing love. What a woman craves is the steadiness of affection that is fervent and sturdy. And God delights in those who put their hope in his unfailing love. Your king calls you treasured possession and says, swap over all your pursuits that say you are the author of your best hope, that you are the concoctor of your best dreams, that you know what will settle you and satisfy you, and instead transfer your sovereignty to me for joy. And you'll find, as many of you find regularly, you'll find this quieting joy that comes over you and it won't matter so much what you've wound up losing or you'll have some solace for what you've had to give up. You won't be counting on it anymore. Have you seen those billboards from time to time? I've, I remember one years ago on Broad Street where, where it says a thing like this. You know how much it costs to raise a child? And then they have some astronomical figure like, it costs $48 billion dollars. And you're like, well, but, I mean, not really, because who would do it? How could anybody do it? If it's really costing everybody 48, I know a lot of people have kids, and none of them have $48 billion. So well, that's a whole other question. It's trying to frighten people who have no business having kids yet to, from having kids. And maybe it works. I, I, unfortunately, I don't think, well, <laughs> I don't think that's the calculus going on in certain situations. But also... Those of you who have kids, and some of you have been kids, so I'll tell you something about your parents. They didn't care how much it cost. They weren't. If someone said, how much does it cost to be a parent? You could say, I don't know, a lot. <laughs> Everything? Your life's constantly interrupted. Your money's not your own. It costs way more than you think, and, uh, you, and you don't, but you don't care. Because you really like these critters a lot. 
And so you're willing to be interrupted. And sometimes you get ornery about it and hassled. But, but mainly you just like them a lot. And so you just are willing to give up stuff. You're not counting the joy of it, the, the love of it. You're not, you're not really tallying. You're not keeping ledgers. You're not, you don't have like a QuickBook account, a QuickBook file for parenting costs that you're aggregating. And then when your parents graduate from college, you know, your kids graduate from college, you give them a bill. Like, okay, now you owe me. Some, some of you might do that, but don't, don't do that. But Jesus knows that if you, if you grab hold of this, just this joy, then you're, then you're going to be able to overlook a whole bunch of stuff. You're going to be able, able to endure a whole bunch of stuff. This is what the Apostle Paul says, that the surpassingly magnificent knowledge of knowing Christ has made it such that I don't really care about what I've had to lose. It's just not a big deal to me. You know Stanley Hudson? Stanley Hudson on the office is a man who's focused on his crossword puzzles. He is just trying to get through the day. And one morning he's at his desk and he reaches over, not paying attention, takes a mug beside his coffee mug and he drinks it. It's orange juice, cold orange juice. And as he's drinking it, Jim says, Stanley, that's not it. It's not your cup. Stanley doesn't notice. They have an epiphany. Instead of drinking this bitter, black, hot coffee, he just drank citrusy, acidic, cold orange juice. And he didn't know. Which begs the question, how many things can we do that Stanley won't be aware of? And so they do these series of tricks where Kevin dresses up like Phyllis and sits across from him. And what's a seven-letter word for purse? Satchel, says Kevin in a big pink sweater. No. And he looks over at Andy, who gives him the right answer, wearing a tie but no shirt. He notices nothing. He's focused on his crossword puzzles. Everything else is paling in comparison. Until he discovers that the clock is slow. And he's energized. What? That clock is slow. It's five o'clock. I'm closed. And he puts his things together and he starts walking out to Pam who says, Bye, Stanley. I love you. Wearing a mustache. (laughs) He gives her a wave of the hand and makes his way out beside a pony. None of which... He notices. These are all unusualnesses of the office. And I thought, what an amazing picture of how when you are focused enough on something, how much you can let go. The problem for Stanley and for a lot of us is that we shrink that focus down so that it narrows our lives instead of expanding them. It suffocates them so that he's, he's just living for 5 o'clock. It, he's, he's a hilarious character, but a tragically sad one if you think about it too much, and I don't urge you to do that. But most of you have hopefully discovered from time to time, and Augustine did this whole idea that what happens as you submit yourself to the kingship of Jesus when you're doing it right, the world never shrivels on you. Nor does your soul, but things start to expand. 
the kingship, the governance, the care, the regard, the availability, the power of Jesus. These things get bigger and bigger and bigger on you. You know as you go out into the world like Argos with his stick that you have a purpose. I get to please my king. What is it you want me to do today, my king? How may I do this work for you, my king? How may I wrestle through my own sadnesses with you, my supporting and tender-hearted, weeping king? When you find a pearl of great value and you realize this is more valuable to me than anything, then it doesn't matter what you have to give up. And... Most of you have already given up to gain Christ, but the whole rest of our lives is a continued realization of this. Just this week, I was, I was, I was wrestling with the Lord. And I caught myself saying something like, I just don't understand why this is happening, why they're doing this. If I could just understand why they're doing this, then I could be okay with it. And then I caught myself in the middle of a lie to God. I didn't realize I was lying. I was mistaken. I tell my kids all the time. It's the difference between a lie and a mistake. A lie is intent to deceive. A mistake means you just made an error. I was unwittingly making an argument to God that wasn't actually true. I thought, you probably never thought this, if I could just understand something that was happening that I didn't want to be happening, then if I could understand the rationale behind it, why this person was doing something that they were doing, that I didn't like and thought was uh, silly, that I would suddenly be okay with it. And I realized here's the fundamental error of that. I wouldn't have been okay with it. Because the problem wasn't the rationale. It was what was happening. Because I had a dream. Or I had a thought. Or I had some intention of how it needed to work out. And someone was standing in the way of it. And God was not cooperating and knocking their knees out from them and letting me get my way. And I realized, oh, there's that self-sovereignty showing a little bit. And I'm distressed. I'm a nervous wreck because I need to have my plans implemented and they're not being implemented. And I'm getting really mad at God because I'm forgetting he doesn't exist to just carry out my plans. It's the other way around, and that's my joy. Oh, my life and my times are in your hands, oh Lord. What a thrill to be able to say that. When you have your wits about you, and you know that the one who's governing your moments and the molecules of your life, who's the giver of the unfailing love that you want, the acceptance that you crave, the eternal life that your rented tuxedo life requires, To know that he's what you want. To know that he is the pearl of great price and the treasure hidden in the field. And it's much better to be governed by him. How do I know what's best for me? And when I have my wits about me, I find this joy of relief. Oh, yeah. How do I know what's best for me? How do I know that a chain of unbroken successes is best for me and not some miseries that I didn't order from the menu. Jesus doesn't matter most. He won't matter much. But if he matters most, then you'll have a way to contend 
with all the loss that happens in your life, with all the, the, the anxiety, with all the fear, with all the worry, with all even the emptiness. And in ways that you never really realize. And that's why he says the joy of this is the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It alters everything. It's a power that comes upon you that makes you able like Argos to be single-hearted, or at least from time to time. And you know how to go to get the power. And it's also a cure for this great emptiness in you. This great lack of control that we have, but despise. You've heard me say, and I close with this, the If you've been around a long time, you've heard this. If you haven't been around a long time, you've probably not heard this. Sermons were saying once, it's worth saying twice, says Steve Brown. Maybe the same holds for illustration. Sometimes I reuse the illustration. I know that. And you know that too. Sometimes I can't remember if I've used one. But a lot of times I do know. But I, I was thinking about this self-sovereignty thing and this authoring and, and intending that things work out the way I want and realizing my whole life has in, in large part been this kind, of, this kind of struggle of assuming that I knew what I needed to remedy what was unwell within me. And you may have heard me speak about in third grade this materialized as a preoccupation with getting a pair of suede Sebagos. Did you ever have suede Sebagos? Probably not if you weren't a cool kid. <laughs> but I knew. I knew intuitively. No one had to talk to me about it, but I knew that if I got these shoes, that life as I knew it would be altered. I'd feel fuller. I'd, you know how when you're a kid, also when you get new running shoes like you just faster you would just be better if you had these shoes there wouldn't be anything you couldn't handle about your life no matter how sour it was going if I had these suede sabagos and the sad thing is is I think I might have gotten them but I can't even remember for sure but I'm pretty sure I got them doggone it lion sabagos I don't even know if they made the promise or if I just attached a promise to them but then I can remember other times of being at the end of a semester in college and, and just running on fumes and, and Mountain Dew and, and sitting in my car on the ridge side, ridge, up, up on the ridge and, and just pondering and thinking, why did I just do that to myself? And think, I had the grades I wanted and I was terrified not to have them. So I didn't ever sleep, and I got what I wanted, and the problem was I got what I wanted, and it didn't work. And I thought, why did I just do that? Why did I just kill myself out of fear of, not, of getting a B? I thought if I could go to Princeton Seminary, I might matter. Got interviewed, thought I'd be competitive for merit scholarship. That was my understanding when I left out of there. Apparently, I'm not a guy who understands things. So I got my letter, Dear Gregory. No letter for a guy who's named Eric. Gregory Eric. 
No one calls me Gregory. Not even my mom when she's mad. No one has ever called me Gregory, even though that's my first name. Dear Gregory, you are a loser. Sincerely, Princeton Seminary. I had thought maybe somehow I'd be something if I got in there. And, uh, and I had this thought if I could just get a Jeep. There was another time I thought, I knew that there would be nothing about my life that wouldn't be, ultimately, I probably wouldn't even need to sleep again if I had a Jeep. I would just walk around, uh, rather, drive through any terrain in this sort of masculine bubble of joy. And so I, I lusted for them, and I, and I studied them, and I went and looked at them, and I read about them in Auto Trader because there was no internet. And at one point, it got further than I ever meant for it to. I was sitting in a dealership <laughs> in a room with this man who cared about me so deeply. It was a very pastoral situation. He knew what was best for me. I could tell. We had just driven this car He knew, too, that my life would change if I got it. He knew it. And, uh, you know, some, he he went to talk to the sales manager, you know, because they they were, it was a a collaboration of care. And he comes back with his best price, and he, you know, like slides it across the table. I look at it, and I say, well, sir, as if I'm at a soccer game, sir. This seems to be a great deal of money. I think I'm going to have to think on it. It's a lot of money. I'm, you know, I'm like 22. And this seems like a lot of money. And then in, in, in the kind of pastoral care that my soul needed in that moment, he looked at me and he said, No, buddy, come on, just dive right in, he said. No, buddy, just come on, dive right in. He did not know that I spook easy. And so when I heard that, I heard the voice of the Savior say, hightail it out of here. (laughs) Because I intuitively knew, no, 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 actually, this is not a good deal. And having my pink when it's dry, Nissan Sentra, and red when it's wet, Nissan Sentra, is plenty fine. It gets me where I need to go. I can hang on to all this money I've worked hard to make. It didn't seem like a good deal at all to tell me to dive right in. I started to see through it. I started to realize, wait, wait, I've, I've wanted deep things. I've wanted things badly, and I've gotten them, and they lied. Or my, hope, my heart hoped wrong. And then here comes Jesus in this parable saying, Come on, y'all. Don't hold back. Just dive right in. But it feels a little different. Because this does seem like a pastoral situation. Why would you be willing to forfeit your soul to grab hold of what you can't keep? Why would you want to be your own boss when you can't even figure out how to put together a cabinet from Ikea? Why would you want to be self-sovereign when the Lord who called you into existence, who thought you up 
and has said, I want you to be with me forever and will give my life. I'll go all in. I'll dive right in so that I might get the treasure of you. Why would you hold back? Why would you hold off from making Jesus the one that matters most? From coming to discover what the psalmist said, heaven and earth may pass away, but the Lord is my strength and portion forever. Heaven and earth have nothing I desire besides you. When Jesus starts to matter the most, your life doesn't shrink. It starts to expand so that you can run like Argos in the path of his command so that you can move without worrying about what people think of you so that you move in love towards them so you're not governing your life so when bad things happen that you did not order off the celestial menu. You know that there is a hand behind it that's converting all bad to satisfying good. It's a deep cure for emptiness to make Jesus matter the most. And it's worth whatever it costs you to get at him. Amen.